Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. This week's topic, Don't Leave It to Trump, let's address income inequality in a way that serves the highest good of all. Get the facts from Josh Hoxie. Bernie Sanders has brought income inequality into the public conversation. When almost all new wealth is going to the top, and literally 20 individual Americans own as much as the bottom one half of all of us, we can see that growing income inequality is crushing our American dream of equal opportunities for all. Not only does it impact the health, education, and welfare of the poor, which is a tragic loss of human potential, it's impacting every one of us. How bad is income inequality in the U.S.? Why is it worsening? How does it affect health, education, and the economy? How is it impacting the elections? Josh Hoxie of the Institute for Policy Studies and Inequality.org has the scoop and will share it with us. He's bright, passionate, and also a former legislative aide to Bernie Sanders. Donald Trump is exploiting people's pain about income inequality. Let's turn our anger or denial into information and mobilization. We are one, and we can make the difference. Information is power. And now, here's Beth. Thanks, James. Well, I can't wait to introduce you to our guests. Um, we just met verbally a few minutes ago. I don't even know if his name is Hoxie or Hoaxie, but we'll ask him when he gets on the air. <laughs> we never worry about stuff like that, do we? But uh, we'll find out. Uh, that's important. And then when, <laughs> James, I have to say that when you said, uh, you know, well, he's got, he has the scoop, uh, uh, I have to admit that the thought that crossed, and this is not James' fault because I write these uh, introductions. <laughs> I, I suddenly saw this pooper scooper and uh, that he has the scoop of the poop, which is, uh, I mean, just honestly, it's so, um, uh, there are certain words I'm not supposed to say on the air, but, uh, but there's such a bad deal going on in our world today and it just makes me want to cry. So uh, we need to be armed with facts and information because the the attack on most of us is relentless and it just doesn't stop and in fact we have a very exciting piece of information for you that we'll share with you after the news which is that Josh has written an editorial for US News and World Report uh, which is just scathing and so informative and we need this information because we can't just walk around feeling angry or bad and not know what we're talking about we need to know what we're talking about so, but before we introduce you to Josh, who is going to inform us, enlighten us, and hopefully make us feel like jumping up and down and doing something, we are going to have the news of the inner revolution. And for those of you who have never heard our show before, by the inner revolution, we mean a shift of consciousness into oneness, accountability, and mutual support. What could be more revolutionary than that? let's start treating each other like we are one, which we are, and start taking accountability for the impact of our behavior on ourselves, on the planet, on each other, on the universe. And let's start supporting the whole, and then the whole can support us. But before we introduce you to Josh, who's going to give us some real important information for us interrevolutionaries, first, James with the news. Okay. This week, in honor of our guest, we are going to feature a few news items about income inequality and then have a few good news items as well. But first, two articles that may give you a shock. First, as reported by MSN.com, June 23rd, the IMF 
warns the U.S. over high poverty and inequality. First, you need to know that the International Monetary Fund is not a left-wing radical organization. It's a well-respected international organization headquartered in Washington, D.C., comprising 189 countries working to foster global monetary cooperation. This is according to their description of themselves. Yeah, yeah. Secure financial stability, facilitate international trade, promote high employment and sustainable economic growth, and reduce poverty around the world, unquote. Okay, so the International Monetary Fund, which is not a Bernie Sanders offshoot, has identified stark trends that it said will slowly choke off avenues to future growth here in the U.S. if not addressed soon, particularly a very high level of poverty for a rich country and increasing inequality. It noted that 46.7 million Americans, one out of every seven people, are living in poverty, including 20% of all children. Working Americans' share of all income in the country has fallen by 5% in 15 years, and the middle class is the smallest it has been in three decades. The polarization in income distribution, the fund said, has effectively cut consumer demand, said IFM I'm sorry, said IMF Managing Director Christina Lagarde. Not only does poverty create significant social strains, it also eats into labor force participation and undermines the ability to invest in education and improve health outcomes. When our guest comes on to speak, you'll see the irony that the IMF is warning us about income inequality while certain Republicans are planning to increase it. In another shocking story, the LA Times, June 20th, reports that one in 10 Cal students are homeless. Cal State students, honey. I'm sorry, California State students are homeless. A study reports that about one in 10 of California State University's 460,000 students is homeless, and one in five don't have steady access to enough food. This is an issue that remains largely undocumented at the nation's public universities. Cal State Chancellor Timothy P. White, who commissioned the study, emphasized the need for Cal State, the largest public university system in the nation, to tackle the issue systematically. He said, getting this right is something we just simply have to do. Rashida Crutchfield, an assistant professor at Cal State Long Beach, identified 11 campuses that already offered some form of a food pantry or homeless support program. Fresno State launched a cupboard last fall that tracks leftover food from catered campus events and developed an app that notifies students when food is available. The university also created, among other initiatives, a center that provides free groceries, toothpaste, and other basic supplies. At Cal State Long Beach, a campus-wide intervention program offers students emergency grants, hotel vouchers, meal assistance, and counseling. The initiative also has secured jobs on campus for nine students so far to help them reach more stable living conditions. How are our students supposed to succeed when they are homeless and or hungry? Isn't this a little ridiculous in the richest country of all time? Don't you think this is unbelievably shocking? You know, we're used to having this kind of information come up about, oh, public schools in the ghetto, right? So it's like, oh, that's somebody else. That's their problem. You know, these are the poor people. These are our students. 10% are homeless in the Cal State University system. And one out of five doesn't have secure food. I mean, I when 
when I read that, I thought, this is like so beyond what we are even realizing, just how bad things are. And I'm so proud of the Cal State system that they're actually taking this on as a serious problem. Just like the public school systems have had to become, uh, you know, meal dispensers because we as a society, as a world, our government is not taking responsibility for the well-being of our people. All right. I'll shut up now. You can go on. Okay. Given these two stories, this next one shouldn't be a surprise to you. It's from MSN.com today. Guess what? 71% of Americans think the U.S. economy is rigged. Nah. According to a national study conducted last May by Marketplace and Edison, 71% of Americans believe the economic system in the U.S. is rigged in favor of certain groups. The survey results produced a grim portrait of economic anxiety that is crossing class, race, and political boundaries. Democratic nominee Bernie Sanders Sanders first used the term in a November 2015 ad called rigged economy, a term to blame the government and Wall Street for eradicating the middle class. Fellow outsider Donald Trump followed suit, branding the American economy under the same adjective, rigged. Since survey respondents represented a roughly equal mix of conservative and liberal values, the collective opinions concerning the rigged economy is all the more telling. With economic, not to mention political, polarization threatening to grow ever higher, it appears that Americans have found at least one topic on which almost everybody agrees. Yeah, you know, the sad thing is that a lot of the white working class people (coughs) think it's rigged in favor of blacks. I don't know what universe they're living in. (laughs) We well, I actually did a video on that called White People, Who Has Your Money? <laughs> so, but unfortunately, this is really stirring up a lot of animosity among, you know, the majority of people instead of turning their attention to where the problems are really coming from. And by the way, it's very easy for people to think, well, there are the good Republicans like, you know, Paul Ryan, who's not a racist and a xenophobe like Donald Trump. But the fact is that that Paul Ryan is adding as much to this more, trying to add more to the income inequality. So we really have to look at this whole thing, not just from the perspective of of what a kook Donald Trump is, but what uh, what kind of policies are these people proposing and why? Okay, James. Okay, so we'll be getting to that a little later on the show. We will, we will. But, for, but first, some good news submitted by Erica, one of, one of our listeners. It's from the thedailycause.com, uh, June the 24th. Trucker saves victim of torture at a pilot station after recognizing the signs of sex trafficking. We recently had on our show the founder of the organization called Truckers Against Trafficking, which trains truck drivers to recognize signs that might help save other lives. This news story describes just such a process, which may have saved a victim's life. On January the 16th of this year, a trucker named Kevin Kimmel noticed something odd and disturbing while at a pilot truck stop outside of Richmond, Virginia. He saw what looked like a young girl looking out the window, The black drapes didn't make it look like a family's RV, is what he said. He saw a guy coming up and knock on the door, and all of a sudden, the thing was rocking and rolling. Kimmel called the police, who came, and discovered that the girl was not only a victim of sex trade, but was found starved, disheveled, and had evidence of extreme physical torture and physical abuse, sexual abuse. Kimmel most likely saved this victim's life. 
An Iowa couple responsible for this have been charged with human trafficking. Human trafficking is widespread and profitable, but it's great to see that we can help. This trucker did. And by the way, to sign a petition to U.S. law enforcement to crack down on the $150 billion human trafficking epidemic, you can go online to the National Human Trafficking Resource. That's NHTRC. And now two quick stories that show that some of us are not completely nuts and that we are changing. The first was submitted by Anne, another listener, and she found it on yournewswire.com June the 23rd. Germany bans fracking forever. The coalition government has said that they will outlaw the practice of fracking for shale gas, but will allow test drilling to take place in certain circumstances. Yeah, like I want to know what. But anyway, go ahead. Okay. Germany will follow France, which has banned fracking, whereas Britain allows it allows it subject to strict environmental and safety guidelines. Fracking has terrible environmental Im- impact, as we have seen, not the least of which involves the release of methane into the atmosphere, which is worse for global warming than carbon dioxide. And finally, there's more and more consciousness about our inhumane treatment of animals. This latest story is from The Guardian, June the 23rd. Buenos Aires Zoo to close after 140 years. Yay! With the quote, captivity is degrading. 2,500 animals will be moved to nature reserves in Argentina. The zoo will become an educational eco-park and refuge for trafficked animals. Among the 50 animals staying behind will be Sandra, an orangutan that made international headlines two years ago when a Buenos Aires court declared her a non-human person, deserving rights. Sandra and the other animals that cannot be moved will no longer be exhibited to the public, city officials said. Beth? Yes, there was another uh, story this week, uh, too, that I saw about a dog being treated as a sentient being. <laughs> like, uh, and, uh, you know, my God, you mean a dog is not a, pe- a piece of uh, a, a baggage, is, you know, uh, that we can do anything we want with? As, you know, there was a time when we said that we could do anything we wanted with a slave. It was chattel, right? Well, we've had that same attitude towards animals. And it's all pretty sick, if you ask me. And talk about sick and sickening. We're about to bring on Josh. And as I introduce him, I want to read you something from his editorial that just came out today, which I recommend you read if you have the stomach. First, Josh, is your name Hoxie, Hoxie, or something else? (laughs) It's Hoxie. Hoxie. Okay. Okay. So... Here's his story. What I just want to pull out just a little bit of a line. This is about House Speaker Paul Ryan's latest tax reform proposal. And uh, he's been bringing them forward every, you know, year after year. But now here we go. The Citizens for Tax Justice, this is right out of his article. Citizens for Tax Justice just released an in-depth analysis of the new House Republican plan. The main takeaway, this year's plan would give an annual average tax break of nearly $800,000 to the top 0.1%. And when cuts to government programs are factored in, the group calculates the bottom 95% of us would be net losers. Now, Josh, am I reading this right? When it says that there's an average annual tax break of nearly 800000 does that mean per person? Their taxes would be reduced eight hundred thousand dollars. What does that mean? 
Yeah, that's exactly what that means. What we're talking about here is is the ultra wealthy, not nearly, not just the one percent, but the top one tenth of one percent. These are the people who um, own the private jets, have the you know billionaire mansions, and these are the people who, under um, Representative Ryan's ideal tax plan, would see their taxes cut astronomically. <laughs> I mean. When I read that, I thought, nah, I have to ask him about this. This can't be right. How can you cut somebody's taxes $800,000? Have you ever paid $800,000 a year in taxes or even anything remotely like that? It's just, I mean, it just makes my ears just exude steam. I'm trying to keep a calm, spiritual, neutral demeanor. But this kind of stuff is insane. Uh, you know, we like to call it trickle-up economics. You have quite a bit to say about that. You don't think trickle-down economics works, do you? Uh, not only don't I think it works, if you, uh, <laughs> if you click on some of the links in that article, um, there's, it's been completely and wholeheartedly debunked. Um, it's laughable outside of this country and in most of this part of this country, but for some reason, the Republican ideologues in Congress are, are clinging to this idea that in some way, if you just give the rich more money, we'll all be better off. Right. Now, do you have a theory as to why? Because, look, it, it's so it's so stupid in my way of thinking. It's so not for the highest good of all. It's not even good for the rich. I mean, the rich need workers who are healthy, for example. So if you have a factory and your workers all have emphysema or environmental illness, and they don't have proper health insurance, and they don't have enough money to buy the products. I mean, you are losing. Your workers are not as productive. I'm just talking about it from their perspective, you know, the dollars and cents kind of thing. Uh, they're, you know, they have to lose time from work because they're sick. Their children are ill. They don't have proper childcare. They have to run home. They don't have enough money to buy the products that we produce. To, to me, it's such common sense that income inequality is bad for everybody. I just don't get this thinking. And what you just said is that outside the U.S., like nobody even takes this seriously. Why do you think people in this country do? Um, well, to, to, to answer your question directly, um, uh, money talks. And, you know, when you look at our campaign finance system that enables the wealthiest bidder to buy their politician at at auction, um, you get what you pay for. And what Republican donors have paid for is uh, ideological, uh, very serious um, House Speaker, who's third in line to the president, mind you, yes. um, who honest to goodness believes that this is uh, the, the most effective way to run the country. And yeah. Um, to, to your point about how inequality is bad, I, I think it's worth putting a, a little bit of a finer point on that. This is not just about um, having wealthy people, you know, give money to their workers so that they can buy their products. I mean, that's that's certainly true. But innovative new research, um, the best of which comes from a gentleman by the name of Richard Wilkinson, who is a British health researcher, has shown that in unequal societies, the health outcomes is worse both for those at the bottom and for those at the top. So no. it's not, it's, oh yes. Yeah. So it's, it's not, and look him up, Richard Wilkinson, he's done Ted talks. He's, he's been around uh, looking at, at countries around the world, including this one. 
And what he's able to show is that the 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 problem is not, you know, raise up the bottom and we'll all be fine. The problem is that the gap between the top and the bottom needs to needs to come down, which means that you don't right. you don't just need to make the the poor less poor. You need yes. to bring down the the concentration of wealth at the top that strikes at the social cohesion of our society. That's really what we're talking about when we're talking about inequality. Breaking that down. Is, yes, that's such an important point. And can you uh, elaborate a little bit on how it sickens the 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 top to have this kind of? I I have a theory about that, by the way. But I'd really like to hear what you have to say. You know, why is that worse for the people at the top? Yeah. So I mean, Wilkinson goes into exquisite detail looking at at his work. So I, I'd encourage listeners. To uh, to check out his work uh, directly, but the the basic point he comes to, as I mentioned, is is social cohesion, cultural limits on unrestrained individualism, and greater networks of mutual aid and caring is is his words. Um, so basically, the the hyper individualism that lends itself to hyper inequality is detrimental to people's house health. Sorry. And, yeah. and what you lose there is, is social capital. Um, what, and, to, and to quote him briefly, uh, social capital uh, lubricates the workings of the whole society and economy. There are a few signs of antisocial aggressiveness and society appears more caring. So that, that's what you get in a more equal society and you get the opposite of that in a more unequal society. Well, one of the points that you're raising here is that it's not just the inequality, but the energy behind it that makes uh, people so sick. So, for example, uh, if you are living in a hyper-competitive world, then that whole attitude towards other people, I mean, is I'll step on anybody to get ahead, even people in your own class. You know what I'm saying? And there is a, a lack of security, there's a feeling of insecurity. I discovered this uh, in a, you know, in an anecdotal way. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a counselor, uh, Josh, and um, I have worked with people who were born in many different nations. And for example, let's say you, I work with somebody from India where, you know, they lived in a village where their family, you know, was on top and everybody else was on the bottom. They had nobody to play with. You know, all of the other kids were impoverished and when they went to their homes they felt guilty and they didn't you know this is purely subjective but I really want to share uh, what people actually experience they experience shame and they have to defend the system because somehow or other unless they turn it around and they become socialists which also happens you know if they're going to keep participating in this system, they have to somehow justify it, which means that they have to insulate themselves from the reality of the lives of the people around them. And so there's nothing, you know, they don't have that nice school to go to in their neighborhood where everybody's playing basketball, right? Um, And so, you know, your friends could be living in horrible slum situations. And, um, you know, just the emotional toll that that takes on people where, where they are in pain, they feel guilty, and they're super rationalizing their behavior, it absolutely leads to a lack of social cohesion. I think that uh, the wealthy, the super wealthy, it's like the aristocrats of the old days. I mean, if you want to see an exercise in 
what does it look like, income and power inequality? You, all you have to do is look at the, the feudal system, you know, where the aristocrats were engaged in horrendous backbiting, fighting each other, everybody is screwing everybody else, you know, really sick kinds of behavior because they were so cut off from reality and they had to keep themselves in this bubble so that they didn't have to face the reality they were looking at every day. So that's my anecdotal view, right. of, I think, of the same thing. For, uh, for, for another anecdotal case, backed with a, with a whole bunch of statistics, um, my colleague has actually written a book on the topic that comes out this fall. The title is Born on Third Base. His name is Chuck Collins. The book comes out from Chelsea Green Publishing this September. So he's, he's got an interesting story coming from the 1%. Um, Chuck Collins was uh, heir to the Oscar Mayer fortune. Whoa. And at, in his 20s, he gave away his entire inheritance, just, just um, gave it away. And um, the subtext of the book is a one percenter makes the case for tackling inequality, bringing wealth home, and committing to the common good. So he oh speaks directly. Oh, my God. To oh, my God. I'm wondering if we shouldn't try to catch up with this guy. And interview him on Interrevolutionary Radio. When when his book comes out, I, I can guarantee he'll he'll be he'll be ecstatic at that opportunity. Yeah, I'd like to catch him before because if it becomes popular, then you know it's hard to get them on. So <laughs> I'm going to try to because there is no inequality in radio. That's right. <laughs> there, you know what I mean. If you're in the top 0.1%, if you're on NBC, if you're on CNN, you know, you have one set of rules that uh, apply to you. Everybody is like falling over themselves to get on your show, no matter what nonsense you're going to be talking. <laughs> well, but anyway, yeah. We have, a, we have a steady stream of content that if you want to talk to us about, we're happy on inequality.org. We have the latest uh, analysis and insights and fun graphics um, that we put out week after week at inequality.org through our newsletter and on our page. So if there's anything there that catches your listeners' fancy, we're happy to come on and chat about it. I am so really glad to hear about this. And I have been on your website, and I'm very excited about your work. And uh, so let's talk uh, first a little bit more. You know, I want to come back to this article because uh, your, your, uh, your editorial, because it's not just that he's going to propose more income inequality. They're also, what a coincidence, trying to gut regulations. And uh, <laughs> why don't you talk a little bit more about that before I get to the juicy part I want to ask you about is, who the heck are you and where did you come from and how did you get to be who you are? But let's <laughs> go back and finish that part of the story. Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, on the on the regulatory side, the the tax plan that we're talking about comes out of the Republicans' plan called A Better Way. A Better that's, Way. That, that's, the, uh, that's the new mantra of, of the Republican Party, A Better Way. And what they're, what they're doing is positioning themselves in opposition to the Obama administration, saying that they, they have all the ideas and, and they want to undo everything the o- Obama administration has done. So the, the two main regulatory uh, pieces of legislation that the Obama administration has passed in their time in office uh, has been the Dodd-Frank Wall Street reform bill, which was in response to the worst financial crisis in recent history, the Wall Street meltdown of 2008, and the Clean Power Plan, which came in the wake of the BP oil spill, which, again, as your listeners know, is the worst environmental 
disaster in recent history, and of course, the oncoming threat of climate change, which the Clean Power Plan is is designed to at least take one step towards towards addressing that threat. So, with those two major threats uh, on us, you know, Wall Street greed is has certainly not gone away, and climate change isn't going away unless we take dramatic action. Uh, the Republican Party has said, "Let's do nothing. Let's get rid of all of the regulations that prevent, you know, Wall Street banks from manipulating the housing market and coal companies from spewing as much dirty." Uh, air into the atmosphere as possible, and let's have an unrestricted free market in which you know anyone can can pollute at their heart's content. Um, so <laughs> that, even that's... China knows better than that now. <laughs> you know, yeah. what are we the dumbest country on the planet? I, <laughs> well, I, don't, I, I would actually give the the country uh, itself uh, a, a lot more credit than yeah. the Republican plan. And and to that point on the tax issue. Um, I mean, the, the mandate that the Republicans are responding to simply doesn't exist. There's been three straight years of Gallup polling that say the majority of American people agree with the quote, our government should redistribute wealth by heavy taxes on the rich. Yeah. That's, that's 52% support. And, and another way that it's been phrased from, from Pew Research, a poll set showed over 60% uh, were bothered a lot by the feeling that some wealthy people don't pay their fair share in taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I mean, that's an indication that people don't want to see huge tax cuts for the rich. They don't want to see inequality continuing to skyrocket in the way that it has. They want to see it a, a different way than uh, forward than Paul Ryan sees it. But unfortunately, Paul Ryan sits, as we said, uh, two heartbeats away from, from being president. So yeah. It's uh, it, it's it's way out of touch with the American people, and it's it's way out of touch with what's needed in this country from our leadership. Yes, that's so true. I mean, the same thing is true. I think of issues like uh, same-sex relationships and uh, abortion. Uh, and now, you know, you may say, I mean, I'm, there's a lot to talk about about abortion, about when it's really appropriate and when it isn't. But this list coming down to making abortion practically unreachable for so many people. I'm happy to see that the Supreme Court actually did something <laughs> that, uh, by, you know, upholding the a lower court's um, decision that they can't close down all the abortion clinics. Right. So, I mean, yeah, the, the, the main thing that, that Congress can do is... is uh, uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, sorry. Uh, yeah, I, I was saying that the main thing that, that Congress does uh, is set the, the parameters of the conversation. So they can decide what, what issues we're talking about and what we're not talking about. And, and, and in my eyes, the, the biggest problem with, with that is issues that are of deep importance to our lives are simply not being talked about yeah. in Congress. So reproductive rights is a big one. I mean, another one that that uh, I'm starting to work on is long-term care. So what's going to happen when our parents and our grandparents can't afford the caretakers they need and and currently can't afford the caretakers they need for their end-of-life care, for the care that, um, you know, very basic, uh, and and as well as for child care. I mean, child care in Massachusetts costs $17,000 per year for just to have somebody look after your kid while you're at work for a 40-hour work week. 
working uh, for uh, $10 an hour. Yeah, it's it's absurd. <laughs> um, right, and a lot of the uh, minimum wage laws don't cover domestic workers. Uh, yeah. A lot of minimum wage laws don't cover tip workers. We're simply not talking about these things on the national right. level because right. we're wasting our time talking about these stupid tax plans that nobody supports. It's, <laughs> it's really absurd. Well, and how much of the debate, especially on the Republican side, has been focused on climate change, which is probably the worst threat in the history of humanity. And it's not something for that is might happen. It's something that is already happening. And I'm always so shocked that these uh, debates that they would have these debates and the, and the media would ask questions, but like, what, you know, why weren't they drilling down on climate change? It's, it's, I don't know. It's sort of incomprehensible, isn't it? Isn't it like a shell game where our, we're always being distracted? It's like what Donald Trump is doing. It's like, all right, so you see that your income has gone down or you feel insecure uh, and you're upset. And so he says, yeah, let's ban all Muslims. Or let's build a wall, or let's do something. Then everybody gets, and then he says some stupid misogynist thing about some woman, and then he'll make some other stupid remark that t- sounds racist, and everybody is up in arms that Donald Trump said something racist, or he said something that could be construed as racist, or he said something that was misogynist. Like we really expect anything different from him, but we're putting so much attention on these outrageous things that everybody can say, oh. I don't support that. But we're not putting the same attention on, and what is the plan for global warming? And, you know, and, and Donald Trump's tax plans are, uh, if, if anything, worse. So, uh, you know, we're not even focusing our media attention on the serious issues that are not being discussed in our country. Absolutely. And and for the longest time, we've had to worry about billionaires buying our elections. And we've had to worry about, you know, billionaires controlling the the specter of, of conversation. And they have. Uh, and with Donald Trump, we've simply skipped the middleman. Um, <laughs> we, we installed a billionaire to do, to do his own bidding as opposed to buy a politician um, secondhand. So so what we have is exactly what, what we pay for. As I said before, we have somebody... Um, like Donald Trump, who is has at least a fighting chance to become the president of the United States, whether we like to admit it or not. Yeah, well, I don't want to admit it. Uh, okay. <laughs> I refuse to admit it. I'm not saying that it couldn't happen, but, you know, it really depends on us. We have to start educating ourselves. You know, we have to face all the racism and the misogyny and all of that that we have within our society in order to stop the xenophobia and all of that, in order to stop these people from manipulating us, from looking at all the wrong things so that we don't look at the right things. And that's that's really up to us. And the mobilization is up to us. I mean, this is what I think is great about Bernie Sanders. I'm, I'm not saying that I agree with everything Bernie Sanders says, but I certainly think that he's talking about the right thing. He's coming up with suggestions. He's opening the topic. And it is up to us to follow through. And I saw that you had worked for Bernie. Uh, yeah, yes, I did. I worked, I worked for him for, for a number of years. And um, what, what I would say about Bernie is that you know his rise in popularity is is definitely not uh, it was it was not predicted by the political <laughs> abundance, 
And it's not a reflection of his charismatic nature and and you know his good looks, hair, yeah, like the like the prime minister of Canada or something. Right. Um, not, nothing against him, but but uh, you know, Bernie's a a seventy four year old man. It's and yeah. you know doesn't he he might own two suits. You know, it's just right. he's a simple guy. But what what I would say about what him is that he is he's reflecting what people are looking for. He's reflecting yes. what people are seeing in their day-to-day lives. What they're seeing is that they're working longer hours for lower wages. What they're seeing is that the gov- their government, their representatives are not responsive to the, the everyday needs of their lives. And, and he is responding to that. And he's responding in a way that, that people can relate to. Unfortunately, on that point, so is Donald Trump. Yes. Uh, um, and and this is a this is I think a, a, a critical point as you talk about arming ourselves with facts. I mean, you can look at the the statistics about inequality, which I spend my days you know cranking them out. That you know, we did the report that twenty people own more than half the country. And yes, I got that from you. I stole that from you. <laughs> it, it's not stealing. Tell tell the world. It's it's an absurd <laughs> scenario that, that yeah. the number of people that would fit in a private jet own more than 150 million people. It's 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 actually quite nauseating if you really. It is. You're it is. With it. it is. Um, but but you can look at those those inequality statistics, and you can reflect that like oh that's because uh, we need to close our borders. You know that's yeah. because yeah. someone's coming in and taking taking what I have. Someone's coming in, and you know we need to you know if if things are really so unequal. Then we should really rally uh, around our, our families with a pocket full of shells, as the song lyric says. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that you know, that's a lot of what we're seeing in Britain right now with the Brexit. We're seeing yeah. a lot of uh, middle and working class people who have very legitimate concerns. I mean, they yeah. have yeah. the same problems we've been seeing in this country. Money has funneled to the top. Um, it's hard to get a job that pays enough. Uh, to to live a decent life in Britain right now, um, for for millions of of working class people in in this country, uh, a, a quarter of the people in this country make uh, less than fifteen dollars an hour. Uh, oh my God! Enough. Wait a minute! I didn't know that. That's another fact from my arsenal. I have to put that in my mental computer, which is at my age, I don't remember things. A quarter of the people make less than fifteen dollars an hour. Of the wage earners, yeah. Of the wage earners, yeah. And if you look at if you look at wage earners, it's quite it it it's really a lot lower. I mean, especially I I, I currently live in Boston, uh, one of the wealthier cities in this country, and also the the third most unequal city in this country. Um, you know, and and we're a little bit insulated from from that because we see a lot of the wealth, but in the the average wage earner or the median wage earner, sorry, only earns twenty eight thousand dollars a year. Yeah. Um, for a family of four, two wage earners, it's only fifty four thousand. It's it's a very small income compared yeah. to to what some might think. Um, yeah, to so, what it costs. Yeah, precisely to what it costs to 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 make money or to, uh, to pay rent, to pay your mortgage, to pay your healthcare yeah. costs. Yeah, and we we've seen. As uh, actually a new new study came out recently from the Wall Street Journal that um, exactly what we already knew rents have been skyrocketing uh, I think sixty four percent and wages are up eighteen percent so that gap is exactly why we can't afford our our damn rent as the uh, as the yeah gentleman yeah. said before so I mean what what we're seeing is that you can you can respond to that in multiple ways right and yeah 
responded one way where they they looked inward and, and in this country you know if if we do see a president trump we'll we'll see what that looks like to really look inward to blame immigrants to blame um people of of muslim faith to blame uh latinos and you know to blame black people too. The, the numbers, uh, especially when it comes to wealth, do not bear that out at all whatsoever, not even no. a little bit. No. Um, like here, here's a statistic for you that, that I think resonates with a lot of people. Um, if you look at median wealth in this country and the most basic way to measure median wealth, uh, which is just adding up all your assets and subtracting all your liabilities, um, white Uh-oh. families own... <laughs> 13 times what black families own in this yes. country. Yes. They own 11 times what Latino families own in this country. Yeah. And, and if you look at the, if you dig a little deeper into those, those figures for, for median black wealth, $11,000 is what the, the typical black family has in this country when you, when you add up their assets and liabilities. Now, there's a researcher at NYU who's looked at these numbers really deeply. These numbers come from the Federal Reserve. They're, they're, not irrefutable, but they're the best data we have. Mm-hmm. And he took out consumer durable goods. So he said, you know, if you buy a car, you really can't sell a car for what you bought it for. So it's not a really good store of wealth. If you buy a television, you can't yeah. you can't sell a television for for the you same can't even fix it. it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, you can't <laughs> even fix it if it breaks. So it's not a really good store of wealth. So if yeah. you take out those consumer durable goods, the, the typical black family, median black family, only has $1,700. Oh, that, my That's God. what we're talking about when we're talking about the racial wealth divide. Yeah. It's, yes. It's really quite remarkable. And the numbers are, are comparable for, for Latino families. And, and for white families, it's over 100, no matter how you measure it. So it's really, um, it's stark, the differences uh, all across racial lines, and it's stark looking at the top to the bottom. And what we need to recognize is that that wealth hasn't disappeared. Like black families don't have seventeen hundred dollars because there's just not enough to go around. Yeah. If you were to split money equally in this country, if you were to just take it up and divide it by families, there's enough wealth or income in this country. Just looking at income, that every family of four could have two hundred thousand dollars per year in income. <gasps> oh, now that's something I didn't know. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, so, I so, love that. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Don't go away yet. Okay. Wait. You know, see, this gets me because I used to hear over and over and over because, you know, when I was a little girl, I opened my eyes and I said, what? <laughs> what are we doing? You know, it was so obvious that there was something wrong. And that was a long time ago. I was born in 1945, Josh. So that'll okay. give you an idea. Okay. And, you know, I was living in, you know, illusion America. This is the make America great again that we're supposed to be. I didn't rem- I didn't think it was great then either. And but they used to say, well, it wouldn't help if you divided all the money, but everybody, everybody would be poor. Right. So I have never heard that statistic before. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, encourage your listeners unbelie- to pull out their calculators. It's a pretty simple division between the number of families and the and the amount of income. Two hundred thousand uh, dollars. I don't. We don't have two hundred thousand dollars in income. Uh, that is amazing. And you know, I mean, just thinking about it in terms of not just the social cost and the emotional cost and the despair that people feel, but just you know, just being able to 
pay your bills and be able to buy the things that I still don't get it. You know, you can't produce things if you nobody can afford them. <laughs> I just don't get, you know, there's something missing. I, I, I There's something missing in, in people's minds. I mean, there's some kind of soul sickness that has been fed by this this capitalist mentality, this ego-based mentality, because I would say that it's not just capitalist, it's just ego-based. Give me, give me, give me, it's all about me, and that we have completely forgotten about the we and how much better it feels to be in a world where everybody is taken care of. I can't stand going to a city and walking by homeless people. I, I can't even look. I hide in the car. Not, not that I go out much because I'm chronically ill. So I don't have to face that. I, I sit in my house and I refuse to watch television because it's too depressing. But you know what I mean? We don't feel happy when we're surrounded by people who are driven to alcoholism or drugs out of despair or who are using these things because they're so stressed out because our society is so competitive. Because everybody's so afraid they're going to drop a notch. You know, because, oh, my God, you have to keep stepping on people to keep going up and up and up and up because, so oh, a younger man is going to come in and take your job. Or, you know, it's the amount of, we had a show on the middle, the myth of the middle about the myth of middle management and the myth of the middle class. And that there is so, no such thing, that if you were really in the middle, the amount of money would be enormous compared to what we think of as middle class, which is just working people who are, who are being told they're middle class so they don't get together with the poor people to overthrow the whole system, which is, sucks. So that's th- that myth and the myth of middle management, like these people really have any power, but they are so stressed. These people have a higher degree of alcoholism than the people below, below them. So this comes back to that quality of life thing that we were talking about, that it's really better for everybody to be in a society where you're not so scared for so many workers and you're so afraid you're going to lose that job or you're going to get sick. Uh, People drive themselves and they can't even connect to themselves to ask themselves why they're doing what they're doing. Right. I mean, I I, I would add that, you know, you you open the show and part of your news talking about how Seven in ten Americans recognize that the economy is rigged, yeah. and um, you know when people talk about the economy, it sometimes sounds like you know a monster on the hillside. Like the economy is up today, it's down today, it's not really <laughs> relatable. Um, but the reality is, is that the economy is is a collection of of rules and and norms that that we've accepted, and it's a flow of of resources from from certain people, to certain other people. And if it is, in fact, rigged, which I would argue it is, there's an opportunity and an ability to unrig it. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, with a number of my colleagues, wrote a, uh, a cover story for The Nation magazine uh, this spring uh, describing exactly how one might do that, how one might unrig uh, the, the economic conditions that, that we're seeing uh, acknowledging that inequality is not going away on its own. So here's how we could we could do that. And we offered up uh, like seven or eight different policies that could strike at the at the very heart of of these issues. Um, things like changing tax incentives so that we don't uh, encourage as much wealth concentration at the top, and we use the the revenue that would be generated for things like universal uh, kindergarten and, and pre K. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Things like making college one hundred percent 
uh, tuition free by funding yeah. it um, through uh, either a change to the taxes on inheritance or, or even a net worth tax, a wealth tax. Um, things like ending offshore tax havens that are just absurd on their face and in my eyes quite indefensible um, that they even exist and yet and yet they persist um, on and on. So closing these offshore tax havens um, and again there's there's ways to, to both lower the, the concentration of wealth at the top and increase the opportunity for wealth creation for those at the bottom. So those are the types of interventions that we're looking to to push forward um, as you mentioned Senator Bernie Sanders has been championing a lot of these issues for a number of years and, and more recently he's been on the the national platform doing that uh, during yes. the Democratic primary um, bringing his message to to millions of people who have come out and and said very loudly that they support um, this and and they're willing to to put their money where their mouth is, as his campaign has shown, without taking a single dollar from super PACs or, or the billionaire class. So yes, what what we're seeing is is quite heartening. I, I I would argue that you know the people are with us, so to speak, and there's a there's a, a a lot of potential. There's unfortunately a lot of potential that things could go the other way. Um, right. That they, that the the Trump isms of the world could could persevere even if Trump himself does not. Um, so so the struggle, uh, so to speak, continues. But there there's a lot of hope for for what we're working in right now, and there's a lot of opportunities that that we're hoping to seize in the near future. I love what you're saying, Josh. It is so true. And your website is income inequality. It's, uh, it's very oh, simple, inequality.org. Inequality. I told you I, I don't have any memory anymore. Inequality.org. Okay. That's why I stopped myself. I said, that's not right. Inequality.org. Fabulous. It's full of so much information. And I want to know if you have any thrusts that you would like to talk about and you want to come back on our show, I hope that you get in touch with us. You know, Joss, I have to tell you something I was going to ask you about your background but I seem to be have we seem to have spent our time already most of it but what I want to tell you is that you have no idea I think you're a pretty young guy aren't you I think you would say that yeah yeah okay so (laughs) you know in my day let me tell you let me tell you You couldn't talk like this. I mean, I was reported to the FBI before I was 12 years old for talking about these kinds of things. And I am not kidding. You know, uh, and so, you know, the fact that Bernie Sanders is is on national television is like, wow. And the fact that people like you are out there and you have all this information at your disposal and people have the opportunity to make a choice. You know, are we really going to enlighten ourselves and think clearly or are we going to let these old prejudices and, you know, just and uh, loyalties to outdated thinking just distort us and send us down the wrong road so we're in a very dangerous moment but it's for the same reason it is full of potential i have never seen this before 
And and I mean, I was in the movement a long time. You know, I've seen the the uh, the black movement and the Hispanic movement, the Chicano movement. You know, the women's movement and the ban the bomb movement, the anti-war movement. But they were much more isolated in a way than this because this is taking on the whole in a different way. It's like, yes, look at racism and the inequality between men and women and all, but look at it in a context of the structure of society. So we have an opportunity now to talk to people in a way that you couldn't talk before and that nobody would even listen. So I totally support what you're doing inequality.org if you want to gird your loins with information go <laughs> there go I there also, i would also encourage people to check out uh the the institution behind inequality.org which is uh it's called institute for policy studies uh ips and while and while i'm i'm uh certainly young though they are not the institute has been around for 50 years started That's- by two guys in the Kennedy administration who looked around and said there really should be an organization expressly advocating for the needs of, of working people. So Institute for Policy Studies has been at this work for since before I was born. <laughs> My God, I didn't know it was started by two guys out of the Kennedy administration. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a pretty fascinating story. Um, the, the famous journalist I.F. Stone called uh, Institute for Policy Studies the think tank for the rest of us. <laughs> well, that's fabulous. I think Arthur Wasco. Uh, yeah, we've I, we've had a we've had a uh, sorry. I F Stone was the. Uh, I, was no, the no, no. I know that, but I mean, I think wasn't Arthur Wasco involved? Anyway, it doesn't yes. doesn't. So there's yeah. I mean, you know, I worked for the Nation magazine. <laughs> yeah. It must have been in 1960. I don't know, 1962, I can't remember off the top of my head. I actually worked for them. In New York City, in this little building. <laughs> so, right. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's really so cool to hear you and to see what you guys are doing, what this generation is doing. Uh, you know, I, I'm so excited by it. And I do want you to think about us. And I do want you to contact me and say, I have something I want to talk to your audience about. And, you know, don't wait for me to find you and look for you because I can't read everything. I'm too old. So, uh, you know, you have something you think our audience would should know about, whether we want to hear it or not. You let me know. And I'm very, very sincere about that because we have to do something. If we don't change the structure of our society, we are going to end up cannibalizing each other, which is exactly what the Trumpism is about. I mean, it's divide and conquer in its worst uh, you know, dimension. So, James, tell us what we're going to do next week. Yes. Next week, push on, give up, choices, choices. How do we know what to do? Here are a different perspective that could change your mind. When we're worn out and ready to give up, should we? When we're stressed and stretched to the max, is that noble or dumb? This show might be your chance to figure it out. Let's take the time to ask, what are we doing? What drives us to do what we do? How do we know what choices to make, when to, pres- when to persevere, give up, or switch gears? Beth Green has an approach, and it might just rearrange your gray cells. So put away your calculator, figuring out the relative risks and benefits of different choices, and jump into a different worldview. Learn all about it on this show, and call in if you can. Beth is here to help. 
Our special co-host that day will be Helen Helix, who will be interviewing Beth. She always does a great job, and we'd love to hear from you, too, so tune in. Now for a final word from Beth. Well, uh, you know, just to let you know, Josh, uh, we are promoting the, the inner revolution, which is a form of spiritual activism, and I think that our world needs it and is ready for it. It's not just the outsides that have to change. It's the insides that have to change. And what you have shared with us today is showing us that this is really better for the insides of everyone to come at the world from a perspective of mutual support rather than from a perspective of give me, give me, give me, and let me get ahead at the cost of anybody. And I really want to thank you. Do you have anything you'd like to share in the next 30 seconds? Uh, no, this this has been fantastic. So it was really great to, to get to chat with you, Beth and James. And uh, yeah, I hope to, to talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me. Uh, absolutely. Great. Please, I am so sincere about this. I really want you to keep, uh, you know, keep in contact with us. Uh, this is critical. And uh, we really, really appreciate it. Well, now I have 15 seconds. Josh, why are you a in, uh, an income inequality anger... Well, I'll just say that what what we do at inequality.org is try and alert people to the horror, uh, try and instill a little humor and give them a little bit of hope. So hopefully your listeners can take that with them, too. I love it. That's exactly what we try to do. I'm trying to laugh myself through the appendicitis. (laughs) Thank you for being on our show. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you both. Bye-bye. 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 Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.